You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, and you can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. The views you hear on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and, accordingly, should not be construed as representing the policy of the American Bar Association. National Security Law Today is the podcast about national security issues in the news. We provide critical baseline information on national security. This episode features part of a panel from our lawyer, Jerga. This was a symposium held at the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University in March 2018. The Jerga theme was National Security, Emerging Technologies, and the Law. And the title of this panel that you're about to hear was The Future of Digital Intelligence, Cyber, Quantum Computing, AI, and Cryptography, Part 1, Intelligence Collection. The moderator of the panel is Judge James Baker, the chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and the panelists you're going to hear are Peter Weinberger, a software engineer at Google, Chris Inglis of Paladin Capital Group, former deputy director of the National Security Agency, and Ren Gady, the general counsel of the Defense Intelligence Agency. To hear the full audio of the panel and to find a list of recommended readings from the panelists, visit AmericanBar.org slash national security or check in the notes to this podcast. At the end of the cast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or on our Facebook page. Enjoy the panel. We're now going to start up the uh, second panel. Um, it's my practice and tradition not to do a dramatic reading of the biographies. However, I thought we should supplement in part because Bob Litt, who you'll see is sitting at the end of the table, uh, is clean-shaven for the first time in a number of years. Um, that's an inside joke. That is not, in fact, a Bob Litt, but rather that's Ren Gay, who... Um, Uh, honorably, courageously, and foolishly uh, has agreed to play the role of Bob Litt. And uh, our ground rules are because he he actually just got dragooned this morning. He came out here as as uh, um, an audience participant, not as a panel participant. Ren is the uh, general counsel of DIA, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, He was previously the SJA of uh, Special Operations Command, and he was a um, a senior counsel at the NCTC, National Counterterrorism Center. The ground rules for REN that we created, uh, there's an actual book of 73 pages of ground rules, but in this case, we have summarized them into the following. I will not directly call upon him on any questions uh, as the lead discussant, but he is up here to uh, chime in as he sees fit. And as with all our panelists, um, uh, well, Peter Weinberger speaks officially and in all matters for Google. Oh. Um, (laughs) 
The other panelists and the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah, right. The other panelists, in fact, do not speak for the U.S. government. Uh, they, they are, you know, although we we all have in some manner prior U.S. government affiliation and Ren's case current government affiliation. Uh, we really are here uh, in our personal capacity. We own what we say, but but we're, we own it personally and, and not on behalf of whatever entity we represent or have represented. Um, including, as it turns out, Peter. <laughs> ah, so um, I did want to mention a uh, couple things about uh, Chris Inglis that were not in his, his bio. Uh, it, is a, it is a great uh, treat, of course, to have a former uh, deputy director of NSA at any conference. And Chris has been one of the leaders in um, one of the first, if not the first, leader of, it, of the intelligence community who really got the memo about the importance of explaining to the American public what it is the intelligence community does and why, um, which is a terrifying thing to do at first. Uh, but, but nobody has done it better, in my view, than Chris. Um, he, uh, I'm just reading the notes here, um, he teaches cyber science at the US Naval Academy. Um, and he has served on uh, most of the boards that you can serve on in the government including the Defense Science Board. Um, fair enough. And uh, so I'll leave it at that. Any, any, anything you'd like to add about your bios? Um, and remember, if you have a space command question, uh, that'd go to Ren. OK. <laughs> uh, the, oh, oh, the other thing is the ground rules were no speeches. Uh, no, no presentations, just questions. We're going to have questions of a technical nature, questions of a policy nature, and then questions of a legal nature. And uh, we'll open up the floor uh, fairly quickly. So I'm going to turn first to technology. And I'm going to ask Peter to tell us what it is, the blank to be filled in. And then I'm going to ask Chris what the national security uses are for it including the intelligence uses. Okay, so let's start with what we've already heard about today, uh, artificial intelligence. How would you define it to a layperson? Please. <laughs> so I'm, thank you for a question I can't answer. The, <laughs> off to a good start. Guys. No, I think, I think it's fairly loud. I'd like to echo some of the things that were said, that Peter said earlier, is artificial intelligence intellectually is in a peculiar niche, and it's rather similar to what natural philosophy used to be. That is, as long as we don't understand it, we call it artificial intelligence. And as soon as it's routine, we call it some other branch of, in, in, in this case, of computer science. Uh, so I'd rather talk about the specific examples and I think echo to some extent what the speakers, earlier speakers said about their strengths and weaknesses. The thing that's, that's brought this back to everybody's attention is the remarkable success of a relatively small number of applications of, of artificial intelligence. And in fact, it's all deep neural nets or deep learning. And the three examples are various kinds of image processing, uh, about which an, a, a fair amount is known. Uh, natural language processing, right? Uh, Siri fixed my dinner, uh, and that sort of stuff, which is which is quite remarkable. And then the machine, I add in the machine translation things, where there's a long history of work on machine translation, and <clears throat> the quality of the machine translations has become 
remarkably better over the last several years. Uh, based, based as these things tend to be both on an accumulation of data and on better algorithms. Um, what's, I think, less fully appreciated, although was certainly brought up, is the, the failings of, of this kind of intelligence. These systems all make mistakes, and none of the mistakes they make are the mistakes that human beings would make. They make a completely different set of mistakes. So what you have is, is to answer, I think, the question in these specific cases are computer programs that show remarkable abilities that come, remarkable human-like abilities that come as something of a surprise to us. They certainly come as a surprise to me. Every time I do a search with my voice, I'm astounded. And in fact, when the, when the voice processing started, you, you, they would say, oh yes, we'll do a voice search, and it never worked. And then the other thing that is true about these systems and is going to be a struggle, I think, as they are adopted by the military, is that the systems you hear on see on the internet are continually improved, right? And perhaps not week by week, but month by month, these systems change a lot and on the whole have improved a lot. And when, when the question was asked about, I'm diverting in various ways, about forensics in, for investigations, in the future, my guess is that a lot of these, a lot of the weapon systems are going to have be updated, as it were, over the air, just the way one, if one had a Tesla, your Tesla is over the air. And without very careful record keeping, you may not know which version of the software it was actually using six months ago when the disaster happened. So, so let me say a few words to repeat about the ways that the AI goes wrong. Uh, one of them is this business of it's trained on data. If the data is not a representable, a representative sample of the world, the universe that the AI is going to be used in, it just can't possibly deal with cases. Uh, the other is is the world changes. Most of most of the many of the things that the AIs are trained to do, the 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 area of applicability out in the real world shifts over time. And you know, not week by week, but even, even language changes over time. And the things that the AIs are good at, say, in machine translation, will be relatively stable. But there's a lot of stuff they're not very good at. They're terrible at slang. And, and the chance that they will understand what teenagers say is very small. Because as I remember, a lot of what we said was designed so no one outside our generation can understand it. And that brings me to the third problem with them is that because the mistakes they make are weird and all their own, they're spoofable in ways we just don't understand at all. And is, well, there, is there anything you'd want us to know about uh, a recent case involving a pedestrian that would illustrate these points? No, I th yes, I'm sure there would be if I understood what actually happened. Um, the, I think that's, I don't think we've even gotten know enough to know whether or not the, the sort of more subtle kind of error I'm worried about uh, was, was at play there, or if it was just sort of bad engineering, which uh, all these systems fall prey to. So I think the thing that, one of the ways to think about AI, let me make a more generic point, is, is people, the way people look at the world is they tend to extrapolate, you know, things go along like this and then they, they change rapidly and then they sort of plateau. People tend to do all their extra extrapolation and prediction of the future during times of rapid change. 
And if you do that, you're bound to get the answers wrong. And I think a lot of the speculation about AI is, is during this current period of rapid change, people extrapolate to states we're never going to see. So, uh, let me leave it at that and open for questions later. Uh, fair enough. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you're welcome to offer your own definition or just talk about the potential uses. We heard about uh, autonomous weapon systems before. What other uses might AI, AI be? Yeah, so so I, I think all of the discussion that occurred in the first panel and uh, Peter's um, has laid a groundwork for how to think about what AI is. Um, I'll try through two lenses to perhaps um, complement that. One, I was on the Defense Department's de Defense Science Board for Autonomy. And I'll talk a little bit about what they concluded and, and why, very briefly. Um, and then I'll, of course, give a, an intelligence community perspective, and recognizing that I'm out of the intelligence community, but still in opinion, so to speak, uh, but don't speak for it. Um, first, on the Defense Department's uh, autonomy study, uh, it was really interesting. Early in that study, we engaged some of our British counterparts, and they said, surely you don't mean to create autonomous systems. And at that point, we thought we might, since it was at that time hoped to be a part of the third offset. And they said, surely you don't want to create a system that can change its mind halfway through the battle and perhaps go to the other side. Um, so, so of course they put it in an appropriate context, but that's not really what we were looking for. We ultimately concluded, um, as the first panel, I think, um, succinctly stated, that the accountability, accountability must and will remain with the human being. Um, so what we were therefore actually looking for um, was a better way to create a man-machine in integration such that the human being's capabilities to make those value-based choices would be enhanced, whether that was through precision or speed or the scale um, at, at which you could operate across broad um, sets of data. That really was the objective. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we were therefore trying to improve human performance, but do so by essentially making better use of the machine. Um, one of the key conclusions of that study was that one of the deficiencies up to this point in time isn't so much the quality of the machine, but rather the literacy of the workforce, that the workforce is not literate in autonomy. Um, you can see that, I think, without knowing the full details of the USS John McCain or the USS Fitzgerald um, accidents, um, that the machines were doing what the machines do. Um, and, and the confusion was in the mind's eye of the people who were operating those machines, not able to discern what the machine was attempting to do faithfully um, according to what its instructions have been given. Uh, that possibly is a workforce that's not literate enough about the limited degree of autonomy in that system. I um, would say in the end, on the DOD count, and I'll move to the IC, that the report was quite conservative when it was all said and done about potential applications of autonomy bordering on artificial intelligence. Um, of course, we'll continue to do the dull, the dirty, the dangerous activities using to the maximum degree possible machines or autonomy embedded in those machines. But for the most part, the extensions from that were restricted to things like trying to divine with greater precision or perhaps greater clarity um, complex situations and present um, opportunities to human beings to navigate very complex, very dynamic territory, very strong intel problems inside of that. Um, moving to the intel, the intel community has tended for many years um, to see um, analytics, heuristics, bordering on artificial intelligence as a way to get their arms around the speed, the scale, and the precision challenges that they have um, to illuminate facts, precise, granular facts, um, against a backdrop of big data. Both of those components are important. 
intelligence community believes, um, again, not speaking for it, but based upon experience in it, um, that big data is a feature. It's not actually a burden, and it's not that you have to winnow out all the noise to get to the, to the wheat, but rather that the thing you're looking for stands out more starkly against that backdrop. Uh, remembering what Donald Rumsfeld once said about the penultimate, possibly the ultimate intelligence challenge is the unknown unknowns. Right? In order to discern something that is anomalous, you need to have a bigger, the biggest possible context. Uh, one key example for the U.S. intelligence community was its um, assistance to the defense against improvised explosive devices in the 2006-2007 timeframe. We were looking largely for second-generation telephones attached to explosive devices that would then be triggered because somebody would call that phone at a distance of 50 meters or 500 kilometers. We were looking for phones whose telephone numbers we didn't know, that we'd never seen, that had never actually been used. And therefore, you're looking for something um, that stands out only because it, it, against a backdrop, is anomalous. What we ultimately did was to try to figure out how to build a contact database of all phones in the country. Pretty audacious, big speed, scale, scope problem. Um, and then query that database incessantly using analytics. Is there a phone on the network at this moment in time that's not made, not received a phone call in the last 30 days? All of a sudden, a cluster of phones would stand out starkly against the backdrop of big data. Um, and essentially, if you then went and found those phones, more often than not, you would find that that phone was only on the network for an illegitimate purpose, waiting for its first phone call ever. You would never have seen that number before. You would never have found that number, except for the fact that you used autonomous, borderline artificial intelligence systems to help you handle the scope and scale to serve a human purpose, the value for which was to prevent something from kind of doing death and destruction to troops in harm's way. Um, at the end of the day, I'll just kind of summarize this and open to questions and the rest of the panel's dialogue. I don't think the problem is accountability in terms of making use of these enhanced technologies, whether it is heuristics, analytics, or AI. I think they're different in kind. I think the problem is in two um, regards. One, it's a problem of synchronization. How do we ensure that the person, the machine, the machine actually stay in sync with each other? Um, that the person has a sense as to what the machine's been authorized to do, what the current status of that machine might be, where that machine is in its decision envelope, such that neither the machine nor the person is surprised. Of course, the machine can't be surprised. It has no uh, sensing ability, but the human often is. Um, and so how do we make sure that that man-machine integration um, is, is intact across the lifespan of their interaction with each other? Um, more particularly, um, from my NSA experience, I would say that the challenge generally in that synchronization was reconciling, synchronizing um, three things, right? The authorities that we were essentially granted either by executive or legislative, sometimes judicial authority, but reconciling those authorities to the technology that would embody the execution of those authorities to the operations that essentially ride on top of that. Um, and the, um, the unfortunate truth is they're really hard to reconcile, really hard to get aligned. Um, and once you do, they don't change at the same rate. Right? It turns out that the behaviors of your adversary change very quickly. Yours then have to match. Um, the technology changes quickly, but less quickly. Um, and the law, um, the Constitution almost never changes, my recollection. Um, the laws change very frequently, and the orders of the court even occur with much le less frequency than perhaps either of the first two. And when they get out of sync, 
Um, that then is what we would, in the intelligence community, from this book, would refer to as a compliance problem. Um, the court might refer to that as a potential felony. Um, it's a problem. <laughs> um, that said, the second problem then is the speed at which that divergence, that failure to synchronize or to stay synchronized occurs. Right? When the machine is running at the speed that it must in order to handle the enormous volume, complexity, diversity of information, it runs far ahead of the human being, reports back from time to time what it has divined, um, and if it in fact is on the wrong course, it goes perhaps a much greater distance in the year 2018 than it might have in the year 1942, um, before the human being discerns you're on the wrong course. And if that wrong course is a divergence from the path that it should be on, that's a compliance borderline felony event, that's a problem, right? In, in our um, kind of business, we don't um, get passes for noble intent, what we get is passes for kind of good behavior, right? You have to actually ensure that you've done exactly um, the right thing. We'll leave you with one final thought, which is that these machines are increasingly good at trying to help us kind of determine with precision a fact of some consequence, whether that's an unknown unknown or whether it's simply answering a question we knew we had um, kind of in a sea of big data. Um, the holy grail is to go further which is to try to divine mysteries. The intelligence community is great at secrets. They're terrible at mysteries, right? And actually then trying to foretell what might happen to anticipate, to kind of figure out what's Kim Jong-un really going to do. We know what he's done. We know what threat he might represent. But there are any number of scenarios out there that he might then um, undertake. I think this technology is going to be increasingly good for suggesting some of those possibilities then perhaps arraying the facts in a way that you can reasonably understand what that potential might be, but the burden, the subjective choice, will still fall to the human being. Uh, thank you very much. A comment at the end? Uh, yeah, just one comment. Um, some of this is going to echo uh, what Chris said, but I would start by saying that the first panel highlights one of the problems we have in this area, uh, one of taxonomy. Uh, I tended to I participated in a conference last fall at West Point on technology and uh, IHL. And one of the things that first that people first turned to immediately was uh, autonomous weapons systems as technology. And because we've all seen the movie Fell in Black. What I would suggest is kind of along the lines of what Chris was talking about, the more relevant and immediate applications come in a couple of different areas, certainly for the intelligence community, but for uh, for us at large. One is in sorting huge amounts of unstructured data um, so that we can have more better application of predictive behavior. And then that leads to um, tipping and queuing, the ability to turn national assets or other assets towards uh, decision making. Because with that predictive behavior, you see uh, a blip in one area that you can turn national assets um, and the last thing I would say is um, intelligentized warfare. Uh, that's what the Chinese equivalent of the Chairman of Joint Chiefs calls it, the ability to speed decision-making, even and otherwise. So those are the immediate impacts that I could summarize really quickly. Um, not so much in autonomous weapon systems, that's down the road, but what we have right now. Thank you. We're going to cut the panel off here, but to hear the rest of this discussion or more from the Jerga's other panels, visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or check in the notes to the podcast. 
Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite home for audio. Follow us on Twitter at ABANATSEC or like our Facebook page for the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We want to thank you for tuning in, but remember, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. On May 22nd, we are having a lunch event in Washington, D.C., featuring Joyce Correll of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center's Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate, called The Internet of Things and Supply Chain, The Next Generation of Vulnerabilities in National Security. Visit our website for more information and to sign up. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.